Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Great episode for you today, exploring the history of Strathcona Provincial Park out in Vancouver Island in British Columbia. This is a park that was created in 1911. Very interesting backstory to it. The initial idea was to have almost a Banff West type of a park where it would be a large tourist draw. A lot of people would come and get out of the city, get out of the modern breakneck pace of life, just relax in nature. Didn't really end up being like that. There's a lot of tension in the history of the park over the extraction of resources, whether that's mining or lumber or even the construction of a hydroelectric dam in the park. And then as we get further into the 20th century and then eventually into the 21st century, the use of the park as a place of recreation and just the the tension between these ideas of, of usage and even the notion that Tourism is in of itself a form of extraction and exploitation of land. Really fascinating story. And it all comes to light in a new book by Catherine Marie Gilbert entitled A Journey Back to Nature, A History of Strathcona Provincial Park. Came out last month and it is a BC bestseller. So congratulations to Catherine on that. Very, very exciting. I enjoyed the book when I had an opportunity to read it earlier this week and... I had the opportunity to talk with Catherine earlier this week as well. So let me get right to that discussion about Strathcona Provincial Park. All right. And Catherine Marie Gilbert joins us now from Campbell River. Catherine, how are you today? I'm just fine, Sean. How are you? I am doing well. Very excited to talk with you again. The book is A Journey Back to Nature, A History of Strathcona Provincial Park. And Catherine, let's start by getting into your background a little bit and what your connection is to Strathcona and why you wanted to research this story. Yes, um, all good questions, Sean. Um, it, it goes back quite a long way because I I first came to the area in 1981 and left again, but I worked at uh, Strathcona Park Lodge, which is about 10 kilometers away from the entrance of the park. And for many years, uh, because Strathcona Lodge is an outdoor education center, they made use of the park for many of their programs, you know, for teaching canoeing, kayaking, hiking, and mountain skills, and so on. Um, Then I returned in 2001, um, uh, and, you know, I had obtained my degree in history uh, from York University, and really was interested in local history. And then upon reading Wallace Bakey's 1988 book, um, The History of the Park, I thought, wow, this is pretty fascinating. I think it would be maybe time to update this. So I started doing my research on it back then. Then I decided in 2015 it was time to get my master's degree in history from UVic. And I was lucky enough to have Dr. Richard Rajal as a supervisor, and we decided that I would write my thesis on the park because it really fits with him being an environmental historian. So that's that was the focus of my thesis, and from there I was able to develop my book. 
I'm, I'm curious to know too about how you came across some of these resources that, that you were able to find because you mentioned that there had been a book already about Strathcona Park and certainly the historiography always does need to be updated as, as new information comes out. But the book relies on a lot of archival research and in particular some photos that you were able to find and, and track down. So how did you go about finding those things and, and what did they add that the historians in the past did not have access to? And, and you know, how did that add that depth to the story for you? When I was looking for Sean, um, because of my years at the museum in Campbell River and learning local history quite thoroughly, as well as all the time I spent at Strathcona Lodge, um, I wanted to fill some gaps. Um, so when I wrote my thesis, I was doing a lot of research and reading what many academics had written. And it was clear that they had focused on certain parts of the story, but I could see where the gaps were um, in that case also. So it was funny because a former uh, lodge staff person by the name of Suzanne Lawson had sent me a number of files to look at that she had collected about Strathcona Park over the years. Then she received a phone call from a fellow in Abbotsford named Joe Bordeville, and she said, well, Joe's wants to find out more about the Reed family who had a cabin on Buttle Lake um, starting in the 1930s and thought, you know, I might know something. She said, well, you know that I don't, but I told him you might. So I got in touch with Joe and he said he was writing an article about the Reeds and in particular William Reed, who uh, was the owner of these cabins. So as it turned out, Joe knew far more about the Reed family than I did. And when I told him I was planning to write this book, he put me in touch with the Reed family in the U.S. And I was able to connect with them and, and speak with Will, uh, Will Reed's granddaughter. Well, it turned out that her mother, who spent many summers at um, Buttle Lake flying in from California, was an amateur photographer. And she had taken all kinds of wonderful, wonderful photos of Buttle Lake and the whole area, uh, so beautiful, and showing how it looked before it was flooded from a dam being put in nearby. So these, to me, were very precious photos because nobody locally had any. The museum I worked in didn't have any photos that were taken in that park for about uh, 20 to uh, 30 years. So this was a real treasure, and the granddaughter, Elizabeth, was uh, very accommodating. She scanned all of these wonderful photos and sent them to me in time for me to get them into the book. So uh, that was a real thrill. You, you mentioned that these photos weren't available locally, and, and certainly yeah, images of flooding from, from a dam would certainly be, be evocative to see and powerful to see when you're looking at the history of the site. So do you think that these images, like, I, I, you know, I always hesitate to, you know, do a hierarchy of sources, but <laughs> let's do a hierarchy of sources. Um, are, are these photos to you, are they really the spine of the book? Is this what makes it, or are they what made it possible for you to update this history in this way and create such a, a powerful narrative that emerges when someone is reading the book? Um, it certainly, uh, these, these photos and, and what I learned about William Reed certainly helped a lot. Um, there were, there were other things that came into play simply because I worked 
for um, at Strathcona Lodge for many years and, and uh, directly with the woman who founded it, Myrna Bolding. So I had a lot of connections at Strathcona Lodge, and it turned out that the people who I either um, worked with or who had worked there before me, they were very much involved in some of the major protests and things that helped change the way the park was treated. So that was a big part of the story. But the, the importance to me of the photos and the story of the Reed family is, is that they filled that gap. Um, mm. that I, I sort of thought to myself of as the dark ages in Strathcona Park. <laughs> so, yeah, it was important, but um, j- just a piece of the puzzle. And, and just, I'm sure people are listening now curious, what is the state of the photos? Uh, has the Reed family kept them? Is there going to be something at the lodge, uh, local museums, uh, even a local archive? What What is the state now of including those into the historical record beyond just the book? You know, I really don't know because um, William Reed was was a very wealthy person and the family created a foundation around him and his work um, because he was an, a very early conservationist. Um, he did a lot of work in Canada and the States. He was American but happened to have been educated in Alberta. So... The museum here would love to get a hold of those photos, but I don't think there's a chance that they will. And uh, (laughs) I think they're just going to stay with the Reed family, but they've been generous in allowing me to use them in different places other than just the book. But, well, that, yes. that's terrific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. You know, the, the, and then there's people know of them and there's, yeah, even if you don't have the originals, there's access to them uh, in the book and, and elsewhere. That's uh, that's terrific because yeah, the more resources that are available to folks, the better we all can do uh, as we look at the past. So I want to mm-hmm. talk about the park a little bit. Uh, I've never been to Strathcona Park myself. My, my, my voyages out to the island uh, the f- couple times I've had the opportunity to go have been centered in Victoria. So for anyone who who might not have visited the park before, this is obviously a huge provincial park, uh, 250,000 yes. hectares, and it was created in 1911. But how would you describe the park, say, to somebody like me from central Canada who we have we have you know provincial parks here, national parks <laughs> that, that we visit. But but what really stands out about Strathcona and what makes it unique? Well, that's that's a, an interesting question, Sean, because um, I grew up in southern Ontario, and, and before I came back out here, I was living in Huntsville and worked in Algonquin Park. Okay. Um, so I know that part of Ontario quite well, and um, I think, you know, if I... Algonquin Park is also very large, and, it, and it's quite beautiful and uh, has a lot of wilderness, one of the main differences is that Strathcona Park is extremely mountainous. So there's um, a, a spine, I guess you would call it, of mountains that go down the center of Vancouver Island. And when you're out on the water, whether you're on the east side or the west side, you can see these mountains. They're highly visible. And many people who have come here, mountaineers, who actually end up instructing at the lodge, quite a number of them, really were intrigued with these mountains and loved it and they've written books about it so that's one of the main differences is that when you when you come here there's there is a kind of grandeur and and it's quite awe-inspiring i would say because the lakes lakes are certainly beautiful and um they're they're great for 
you know, any kind of water sports. But the, the hiking and the mountaineering in the park is just, just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, it's a debate that I've often had. I, I, I lived in Regina for a while and uh-huh. I fell in love with the prairie sky. <laughs> and uh, so the the debate of like what's what's more powerful or awe-inspiring, the mountains or the prairie sky, uh, <laughs> is one that I've had quite frequently. I don't think there's a wrong answer. I mean, no. you, I'll, I'll take whichever one you don't want if we're having that argument. You know, they're both, uh, they're both pretty powerful. But it, it is interesting, you know, especially again, for someone like me who grew up in, in Southern Ontario, lives in central Canada. Whenever I do have the opportunity to go out west, those the mountains are they do stand out. You do take notice of them, certainly. But if we get back to that that moment in 1911, why was the park created? What was the benefit for the provincial government to create a large park on Vancouver Island at this time? What what was the impetus towards the, the park's establishment? One, one thing I read that, that really struck me uh, around the origins of the park and this decision to create a park was that there were various tourism boards that had already been established in both Victoria and Vancouver. And at, even at that time, there were many people who strongly felt that tourists should be coming here and that tourists should be exploring Vancouver Island and exploring British Columbia and seeing these mountains. There were thoughts that a whole rail line was going to end up on Vancouver Island, but it didn't, it, only part of it did. It, it The whole sort of dream of the rail didn't transpire. But oddly enough, what, what really bothered people in those years was that, uh, you know, they saw the results of the Industrial Revolution, and it came later to Canada than it, it did in Europe, of course. But still, people were already concerned that a lot of our beautiful areas and our wilderness were going to get eaten up, and they thought maybe industry was going to enroach all over the place, which, you know, in some ways um, it has. Um, And and British Columbia, of course, is a resource-based province economically. And they felt that it was important to get away from the busyness of life. So even in 1911, people felt too busy and overwhelmed. And I, it was really interesting for me to read that and think, wow, already people felt that way, even more so, you know, not a different kind of busyness than we have now, but certainly looking for a place to preserve so that people had a place to get away to. And the book touches on this, uh, I think, really well uh, as you go through it, because the, this idea of preservation, the idea of getting out of urban spaces, getting back to nature there's this mythology in Canada of, of the natural, and yet oftentimes that natural is a very curated natural. So, you know, there, there's talk about, in the case of Strathcona, culling the cougars, for instance, <laughs> to create a, a safer environment, to bringing in plants that were not necessarily indigenous to that area to beautify the park. So, what is the tension there, or is there a tension there that, that you found of, of individuals who are discussing preservation and ensuring that this natural environment stays pristine for visitors versus actually just letting the nature be nature? Like this curation of nature seems to me somewhat exploitative, maybe not in the same way as logging or mining or building hydroelectric dams. But to a certain extent, there is an exploitation of the natural when you're creating these spaces for tourists. So 
Was there any reflection on that or or am I way off in equating those things in, in any way? Oh, Sean, it's very interesting you should say that because I just recently had a conversation with the, the area supervisor, Andy Smith, who wrote the foreword in the book. And I think he even said something about it in the foreword. He said, maybe we should be glad that their dreams didn't come to <laughs> fruition yeah. because then we would, uh, you know, have these big hotels in the park and there'd be a golf course if they could have, you know, made right. all of this happen. They would have created hydroelectric power right within the park. So, you know, it is it definitely, you know, you're, you're right on target. The type of um, there was an attitude towards parks in, in that era and it's called utilitarian. So they, yes, they thought that people needed a peaceful way to get away to, but that people wouldn't be attracted to the wilderness as it, as it was not a pristine wilderness. You had to tidy it up for everybody and make it a little prettier. So, so what stalled it then? I mean, the, the book talks about the, as, as I said, it talks about the founding. It talks about the discussions that took place around exploitation of the resources. And, and we can talk about that. But ultimately, what do you think stalled this development of the park as a major tour site? Almost as, as I believe it comes up in the book, this sort of Banff West almost idea. Yes. Yeah, uh, that you, was... You know, that was it, the vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what stalls yeah. that ultimately? Uh, the war, First World War. Yeah. They they made really good progress building the road. They decided Campbell River was the best access. Um, they they built a road to within a, about um, 20 kilometers of where the park entrance was to be, but not all the way to the boundary of the park. So when, when the war broke out... Um, they, you know, everything started to change and men were either volunteering to be in the war, being conscripted. And so by 1915, um, they just, uh, they, they didn't have enough of a workforce to work on the road. And they, all of the funding that um, was going towards this project was diverted to the war effort. So that pretty much stopped it. And then R.H. Thompson, who had been the planner, was an American and he was receiving a healthy salary for the work that he was doing. And he left um, at that time as well because he couldn't do anymore, but also because he was being, um, I guess you would say Canadians, not, a lot of them were not very happy about having this American work on the project and receiving all this money for it. So yes, it more, it just more or less died uh, right at that point. I, I do wonder too, then does the first world war and the need for stuff, during the war, does that build up again the idea of this as a site of exploitation? Right, you need wood, uh, you need you need resources for mining during the war. Uh, does does the war reframe it and look at the site more in that exploitation realm that we start to see as, as the book profiles once we get into that interwar period? Well, no. It, as a matter of fact, what's funny is that um, Wallace Bakey had first started coming up to the park region in those years and he wandered along the road and said he was just really astonished at all the waste he said mm -hmm. they were burning all of these this beautiful wood from the trees they fell to make the road and not doing anything with the wood he said there was a lot of value in that wood so it wasn't turned over to the war effort and even though um 
there were a few mineral claims in the park. Nobody, no big company had come in to actually do um, any big scale mining. So no, those those things weren't used towards the war effort. It just simply stopped. So once we get into that that post war period, then and and the book really looks at this, uh, you know, thirty to sixty range as part of the section. And I love, by the way, the title of chapter two: "Why Are There No Roads Into the Park?" I, I, I love, <laughs> I just love that uh, as a title of a chapter. It's absolutely brilliant. But once we get into this era, you know, what what is the discussion like surrounding logging, hydroelectric, and mining? Is it contentious? You know, there are obviously people who have a vested interest in these projects, the the companies who want to get in there and do them. And then there's obviously then you have the, the conservationists as well. So through that, that middle of the century, what is the, the tone of some of the discussions? Because from reading it, it almost felt like Strathcona Park was in this netherworld of sorts, that it, it, <laughs> it wasn't this tourist thing that everyone had talked about early on. It wasn't really this point of exploitation and extraction that some folks wanted it well. It kind of felt like it's sort of in the middle of these things. So how would you assess that particular period, that, that middle of the century for the park? Well, that is um, that is the one that I thought of as the dark ages for a long time because it was nothing was happening. And I wasn't clued into what was really going on until I was given some tapes to listen to by a fellow by the name of Bill Merrilies who had a very long career with BC Parks. And before BC Parks was ever formed and um, there was a forestry division that looked after Strathcona Park, they started, they they were just focusing on creating a few small parks all over Vancouver Island that were sort of day use parks. Um, and the fellow who was in charge of that project, he said, he said, uh, oh, no, we, uh, we're we not interested in Strathcona Park. It's just simply too far away. So he meant too far away from settled areas like, like Victoria and Parksville. So they there was no interest in um, the, with the organization that oversaw the park in developing. They just were not interested at all. So what people did locally was, because there was so much logging in the area from, from Campbell River towards the park, they would take these logging roads to get themselves to the park. So it, it was kind it was one of those sort of funny things where people couldn't use the government road that w- was never finished at all to the park, but they could get there by using logging roads. What was then the, the, the response from the logging company? Logging roads, and no one's ever going to accuse me of being an expert on logging and logging <laughs> roads. But my understanding, though, is that logging roads can be somewhat treacherous at times. They're built for logging trucks as opposed to individual vehicles. So what was the response then from the, the companies? Was there any sort of danger involved in, in ordinary people traversing this park on space that was designed for a very specific type of vehicle? Uh, oh yeah, there there certainly was a danger, but I think it's always been, um, and particularly in those years, a kind of understanding that the public takes a logging road at their own risk. For example, on the west side of Campbell River, there used to be a bus that would take people uh, from Campbell River to Gold River, and it was the only way you could get there by land. And before you got on the bus, because it was taking a logging road, you had to sign a waiver saying that you understood the risks. 
So people were determined to get to Battle Lake because the fishing was great. They liked the wilderness and they were willing to take chances. And the logging companies didn't prevent people from doing so. They really didn't have the manpower or the means to stop anyone from taking these roads. So we have the the logging roads and that being the way to traverse the site. Of course, another thing that comes up, you mentioned it a little earlier, is the idea of hydroelectric and the building potentially of dams. One of the other chapters in the book is the battle for Buttle, talking about the lake. So how does that discussion play out? And, you know, when we think of, again, central Canadian mindset here, when I think of dams, I tend to think of them as not being as harmful as other forms of extraction, of other resource extraction. But I know that I am wrong in thinking that, that they can do <laughs> significant damage. Uh, but my sort of knee jerk is always, oh, dams, yeah, good, they're, they're okay. Uh, so, so what was the discussion, though, surrounding a dam? And why is Buttle Lake so central to that story. Why is it such a, a focus of the discussion surrounding hydroelectric in the park? Well, there's a few things to touch on here. Uh, one is that as early as 1927, um, the ministry that decided on what could be allowed or not allowed in parks had decided that um, it was okay to access the, the waters in, in major parks in BC for hydroelectric power. And in this area, it was because a company, an American company called Crown Willamette, wanted to establish a pulp and paper mill in Campbell River. And Buttle Lake is the head of the watershed. So everything starts in Buttle Lake and then goes through a series of lakes in the river and over a big waterfall called uh, Elk Falls before it gets to the ocean. And, and they wanted to harness all of this power um, that didn't happen, but then in the 1950s, an organization called the BC Power Commission envisioned the same thing, but they started the first dam called the John Hart Dam closer to Campbell River, then they built a second one called Lador further west, and then they had their eyes on Buttle Lake as the last and final dam. But at the same time, uh, Roderick Haig Brown, who was a local conservationist and fly fisherman, and who's now considered to be the uh, father of BC environmentalism, was very concerned about this. He loved to fish in Battle Lake. He knew how beautiful it was. He and William Reed had become friends. And he, he felt if you put a dam at Battle Lake, you're going to destroy all of the uh, natural beauty of the place. The, the water levels are going to rise. So you have to log all of the old growth trees and it's just, it's going to harm the fish. There were all kinds of reasons. And he was right to be concerned because it had happened at Lower Campbell Lake, just to the east. So so there were multiple things going on. The Power Commission wanted to come in, but local conservationists and then wider conservationists became very concerned about what was going to happen to Battle Lake. You see a similar thing kind of play out surrounding mining, right? Where you, you have industrial concerns and they want to get into the park, they want to mine, and then you have conservationists and, and local folks who are concerned about it. So is the case of mining really just the same theme going on 
just the subject is different because because again that's kind of how i read it and, and as i was going through thinking like you know history isn't necessarily repeating itself but it sure seems like it's rhyming in the case of of mines when we're comparing it to the hydroelectric situation yes it's similar um one of the big problems facing the park was that there were mineral claims already in that region when it was decided where the park would be. And early explorers actually went looking for minerals. That's what they were after. And, and this created problems down the road because the provincial government could not afford to buy out all of these mineral claims. Then finally, when a large mine went in in the early 1960s, um, nothing could be done because they rightfully had claims. But, but all of the sort of decisions about what could and could not happen within a park kept shifting and changing, and there was never any public input allowed. So um, when they opened it up to mining, uh, these this big company, Western Mines, uh, decided, well, this is a good time to activate our claims, and they went in to start drilling. And one of the interesting stories I came across was that a Parks employee was down the road and saw these men drilling at the in south end of Buttle Lake. He said, well, what are you doing here? Do you have some kind of permit? He said, I didn't hear that anyone was drilling in the park. And they, they produced their permit, and he went back to his head office, and they didn't know anything about it either. <laughs> So it just—it was really quite incredible what was going on on different levels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you'd think someone would know something about something yeah. going yeah. on, right? Uh, now, of course, as we're talking about this too, I imagine that someone is listening to this and thinking the the obvious question, of course, in the process of all this, from the creation of the park, from the discussion of tourism, from the extraction of resources from the park. At any point, did anyone ever consult with the indigenous communities who uh, traditionally are around this area? Oh, not as far as I know. Um, I tried to find out what I could, and that was one of the most challenging parts. But from what I could figure out, there was never any perception that any indigenous groups had used the park. And part of the problem was that the perception was that if they didn't actually find a village site, then they figured that nobody used the park. And then years later, it, it you know, there's a, been a different understanding now, realizing that that uh, much of the territory can be traditional use. And it doesn't mean that people actually lived or settled there, but they certainly used it for hunting and gathering of berries and so on. And a lot of that history is quite recent, a lot of that research. So Back in the 60s, they certainly weren't thinking about that at all. But on a positive note, when BC Hydro built, finalized all the dams, they, they did realize in later years that they hadn't done any archaeology. So, it, so this was something I found out just as a kind of fluke through someone I knew at Strathcona Lodge. He said, oh, did you know arrowheads had been found at Bottle Lake? And, oh, really? And then I followed through. and. Um, an archaeologist in Courtney told me, he said, oh, yeah, we did a dig there. And he said it was financed by BC Hydro because they realized that they had allowed all this area to be flooded and didn't do an archaeological investigation first. So it turns out that there was settlement in the region, but going back about, um, they think, maybe 10,000 years. That's pretty interesting and cool that that, that research was done. But 
you're you're right too when you talk about the ideas of land usage right that's very a a eurocentric way in which people thought of and to a certain extent i think still do think Mm -hmm. of land usage and possession of land as being permanent presence on the land as opposed to just uh, sort of more indigenous traditions uh and, and how land was used prior to european contact and it it kind of then therefore fits the park into a larger story of colonization and the way in which parks have traditionally been used as forms of the the establishment of the nation state the canadian colonial project parks have been part of that over the course of the you know 500 years that european have been on this land so it's kind of interesting that or this is something that stood out to me as i was going through that this is a story about strathcona it is a story about this provincial park in british columbia but it fits in so many ways not just this one but in so many ways it fits with larger national narratives and and a national story and i'm curious as you were going through and writing the book putting all this material together did that strike you as well absolutely and um you know, I was I was very fortunate that while I was at the University of Victoria, I was I was um, a student of uh, Dr. Rajala, who ended up being my supervising professor, and I took a course with him on Canadian environmental history, and this came up over and over again. Uh, we we read some really fascinating articles about how parks were developed with exactly what you said in mind, and not consulting with any indigenous groups about uh, was this maybe territory that they used, even if they didn't live on it. So this happened over and over again. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely a theme when you when you look at parks, uh, too. And and I I should say, I I think most a lot of folks know this, but I'm a historian at Parks Canada. uh, And we're working on national historic sites, primarily. So I, I do understand the the history of the organization that i work for in this story as well not to sort of just put it all on strathcona by any means yeah. as, as it is a national story mm-hmm. yes so, it is so what is the state of strathcona now in, in 2020 and where do you think the park is moving forward the book is coming out the 110th anniversary of the park's establishment obviously a, a very interesting history i loved going through this book but as we move forward, where, where do you situate the park now and its place both within the island community, but maybe even just more broadly provincially in the way it has been administered by the provincial government? The way I see the park is that it, it was really people's efforts to say parks are places where there shouldn't be industry that finally brought things around, you know, back in 1993 when they, they formed the master plan and said, okay, this is this is a park that is a wilderness park, and let's focus on keeping this park maintained for recreational use so that the public can go there. And, um, and it took a lot of effort to, to arrive at that point. A lot of big changes were made in that time. Now, today... Um, I've spoken at length with, with Andy Smith, the area supervisor. Um, you know, he, he's, he says like one of the big challenges is that BC Parks just doesn't have the money or the funds to, to develop or have Strathcona be the way they would like it to be. Um, so they rely on volunteer groups to create visitor centers and that sort of thing. 
um, although he's hoping to to put one near Butter Lake at some point in the future. So there isn't any money there provincially to make the park more accessible for people or to educate people about it. But certainly, you, I worked at Strathcona Lodge again for the season of 2018 and 2019, and I was astonished at the number of people who were really interested in going into the park. And I was able to compare that to 2001 and 2 when I'd worked in the office and was answering questions about the park all day, when few people stopped by and few people were interested in going. And now uh, they have so many visitors. So it certainly has fulfilled its promise, and I, I think it will continue to do so. Yeah, and, and the book talks about, too, that in this era right now of, of COVID, that people are looking for these things to, to do, to get out. And to, you know the, these parks uh, across the country are, are very popular now. And the book also notes that this particular park, Strathcona, can be dangerous at points. So if you are going to venture into Strathcona Park, take all the necessary precautions like don't go by yourself like this this is a place where with a lot of parks across the country where you you want to know what you're doing you want to be aware of your surroundings before you go right yes i'm really glad you brought that up sean and and as you noted i i emphasize that um when you when you spend a lot of time at strathcona lodge you see things happen and you have tourists come in who for some strange reason, they will read blogs that people have written about uh, adventures they've had in the park, but they won't go to the BC Parks website to get their information. Right. And I would find that people would come in with all sorts of misinformation about um, how long it would take to, say, climb Mount Albert Edward and, uh, you know, where it was. They often were confused about where it was. Nobody seemed to consult a map. and. You know, at, at Strathcona Lodge, because it's an outdoor education center, it was part of our job to uh, prepare people for wilderness trips. But too many people don't do the research and they just think, oh, it's it's a hike in the park. It's, you know, wh why do I need to bring extra clothing or worry about getting in contact with people? And um, it, it was pretty astonishing. And I, I feel badly for the search and rescue who are constantly going into Strathcona Park to rescue people who just simply haven't prepared themselves. Well, of course, one way you could prepare yourself, at least in part, is by reading the book. Again, A Journey <laughs> Back to Nature, A History of Strathcona Provincial Park. Catherine, if people want to pick up the book or if they just want more information about it and about you, where can mm -hmm. they go to find it? It's available in... In, on Vancouver Island at most major bookstores um, in Victoria and, and Campbell River and up and down the island. Um, I know that it can be ordered online as well through Amazon or through the publisher, Heritage House. And people are welcome to visit my website, um, katherinegilbert.ca. And I also carry a stock of books. I'm happy to send out signed copies to people. But if uh, People can contact me through my website. I have my email address there. All right. We definitely encourage everybody to do that. And we'll link to everything in the show notes and head on over to activehistory.ca. The post associated with this episode will have all the links and information there as well. So encourage everybody to check it out. So again, Catherine Gilbert, thank you so much for joining me from so far away from where I am out in Campbell <laughs> River today. I really appreciate your time and the congratulations on the book. Thank you very much, Sean. So there you have it. 
my discussion with Catherine Marie Gilbert, and I thank her for her time, and I thank our friends over at Heritage House for helping to set up this discussion. Again, A Journey Back to Nature, A History of Strathcona Provincial Park. I enjoyed it, and it's a story that, yes, it's about a specific park in British Columbia on Vancouver Island, but it does have a lot of the themes that exist in the history of parks across the country. So very applicable book if you're interested in the way in which parks are developed and historically have been developed across Canada. So that will do it for this week's episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Do the likes, the ratings, comments, all that good stuff helps us grow the show, helps us beat those algorithms. And do head on over activehistory.ca, fully loaded up this week and this month. Lots of great material over there. Congratulations to everyone who's part of the Insecurity series. I know Daniel Ross has been working hard to set that up, and it's been going on, uh, I believe it started this week. And it'll be a regular feature on the site going forward for the next little bit. So do check out that series. Really wonderful stuff there. You can also find all of our past episodes under the podcast tab. And if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, historyslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Graham And I will also note that this week over on the Game of Stones podcast that I do with my brother Scott... I had the opportunity to talk with Greg Smith, who was the skip for Newfoundland and Labrador at this year's Briar out in Calgary in the curling bubble that was set up by Curling Canada about LGBTQ2 plus representation in sports. Greg was part of the first ever game at a Briar between two out skips back in March. Uh, we talked about that. We talked about the coverage of that and just the importance of representation in sports. So if you're interested in that, do check it out over gameofstonespod.com. You can find that or wherever you get your podcast. So that'll do it for us this week. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll be back with you next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.